Good morning. I love the way that video ends. Grab somebody and pull them in. All right? That's all I got to say. Y'all have a good day. All right. That's, I mean, that sums it up right there. Participation over observation. When in doubt, just grab somebody and pull them in. When uh, my family and I moved here back in April when I was uh, first starting here at Mount Horb, you know, we only had about three weeks to move coming from my previous appointment. It was a, a mid-year move and we moved very quickly. And so we just grabbed an apartment, threw a bunch of stuff in storage and moved in there, you know, temporarily as kind of a stopgap sort of measure. And uh, we got sort of settled in and then we pretty quickly started looking for a more permanent house, you know, that we could actually buy. We have uh, moved around a lot and that has not been on purpose. That has not been our plan. It's just the way things have worked out. So we're really hoping to uh, put down some roots here at Mount Horeb and in Lexington and stay a long time. And I'm pleased to announce that uh, about seven weeks ago, we bought a condo over in Yacht Cove, just on the other side of the dam. Here's Joe Dusenberry. He's one of the men that's been helping me. Welcome, Joe. Good to have you. Better late than never. Anyhow, um, we've been doing, you know, we wanted to do a lot of work to really make that condo our own. You know what I'm saying? You know, when you buy a house, if you're going to do some work, the time to do it's before you live there. And, uh, and sometimes it's just not yours, you know, unless you do certain things. And so we had our, our mindset on what we we're gonna do. Well, we bit off way more than we could chew. <laughs> I, have, I really don't know what I'm doing, but I can't afford to pay anybody, so I'm doing it, you know, and learning as we go, and it's taking a lot longer. But anyhow, we've had a lot of guys and girls too from the church helping us, and we appreciate that. And, you know, we've uh, been tearing up floors and putting down new floors and ripping out paneling and patching sheetrock and painting and scraping popcorn ceilings and all this stuff and moving, of course. And we've had people help us with, in, you know, different ways, doing different things. And, uh, and we're very appreciative of that. I mean, you know, the old saying, we couldn't have done this by ourselves. I mean, that really applies. You know what I'm saying? We've needed a lot of help. But you know, as great as that's been, unfortunately, we've had one member of our work crew who just hadn't been pulling his weight. And you know what that's like, don't you? When you're working hard on a project and you got to get it done and everybody's doing their best and doing what they can, except that one loafer, that one slacker. And it just, it just sucks the air out of the room. You know, it just pulls everybody else down because everybody else is doing their best, doing their part. And you got that one guy who's just not cutting it. And you want to tell him, hey, you know, you need to up your game a bit. But you're too polite, and so you don't tell him. Well, I'm not polite, so I do tell him. And I've been telling this member of our work crew, you know, I don't know why we continue to feed you because you don't do anything to earn it. We, we feed our workers. And I've been telling him, you know, if we could just get some work out of you, we'd have been done a long time ago. But no matter what I say to him, he just sits there with the same dumb look on his face. And this morning, I am pulling out the final stop to get some work out of this guy. I'm gonna publicly display his picture to shame him into working. Can we get his picture? There he is. That member of our work crew has done nothing. I mean, no paint, no flooring, nothing. I try to tell him, look, looking cute and furry is not a contribution, okay? You know, I tell them all the time, if you weren't cute and furry, I don't know what would happen to you. What would, you know, where would you be in life? But anyway, uh, but you know what I'm talking about, right? For real. Uh, when you're working on something and there's a couple people that aren't pulling their weight. You know, we laugh at that with my dog and my chaos, not knowing what I'm doing and all this stuff, right? But you know what's not funny? This is not funny, seriously, is that most churches are like that. They're like a work crew where some people are working real hard and then you got other people that just aren't pulling their fair share of the load. They just aren't doing much, you see. And that's not the way God intended. God did not intend for anyone to be like my puppy, just sitting back and watching other people work. 
Being a spectator is not a spiritual gift. In fact, I would dare say there are no spectators in the kingdom of God, there are only players. God does not intend for anyone just to be sit back, sitting back and observing. God intends for us to participate, to be involved, to be engaged in the work of the kingdom. And so here at Mount Horeb, we believe in the core value of participation over observation. And that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. You know, Jesus never said to anybody, come watch me or come watch my followers. Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and do the things that you have seen me doing. Come and do the things that you see my other followers doing. Come and participate. Come and be involved. Come and be engaged. Come and use your strengths and the gifts that I've given you to make a difference in the world. Christianity is about participation, not about observation. Now, <clears throat> like so many other things about Christianity, this one is countercultural. Pretty much everything, you know, as we mature in the faith, there's so many things that are countercultural. And what that means is we've got to be intentional and strategic about it because it's not going to just naturally happen, right? And the reason why this is countercultural is because we live in a culture of observation, right? We live in a culture where we watch an obscene amount of TV. We watch other people do stuff. We play virtual reality video games. We surf the internet and we spend incredible amounts of time consuming worthless information, right? We live in a culture of observation, but Christianity is about participation, not observation. And so if we are going to master this and be faithful in our Christian life, we're gonna to have to be very intentional and deliberate. It's not gonna just happen by osmosis. We're gonna to have to be checking in with our mentors and with ourselves and asking the Lord, am I doing enough? Am I making a difference? Am I using my gifts to make a difference with my life? Am I helping my church? Am I helping my community? Am I furthering the purposes of Jesus Christ? It's not gonna just happen by drinking the water. You know what I'm saying? We have to be intentional and participate. And I think one of the first steps in the right direction towards being participatory rather than just uh, observing uh, is to change the way that we view coming to church. I think one of the problems is, you know, so many people view church like they view going to a stadium to watch a football game. You go to a stadium to watch a football game, there's 80,000 people there cheering and watching just a small handful of people doing stuff. And if we see church that way, where a whole bunch of people show up just to see a few people do stuff, guess what, we're just gonna be observers. But friends, going to church is not like going to a stadium. Going to church is like going to a weight room. When you go to a weight room, you don't observe, you go to a weight room to participate to get stronger, to get built up, to get better, to have a coach put you through exercises that you wouldn't naturally do on your own so that you can get better. And in this case, get better at the game of life, get better at the business of discipleship. Coming to church is not like going to a stadium to watch and observe. Coming to church is like going into a weight room to get stronger, to get better, to be built up so that you can then go out and make a difference. Now, I've been so busy watching football, I, I've, Listen to me. I've been so busy remodeling my condo that I haven't gotten to watch any football. My seven-year-old yesterday, my seven-year-old girl said, Daddy, we're missing all the football. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. I've got her loving football at an early age. This is an achievement. Anyway, we are. We're missing the entire football season. I haven't watched anything because I've been so busy remodeling my condo. But it's football season. Some of you know I played football and I've got football on my brain, so just bear with me. You know, football is the epitome of a team sport especially on the offensive line, which is what I played. On the offensive line, you got five men, but they have to work as one unit, 
right? You got five men, but they have to work as one unit uh, because you have to communicate. As it, you know, believe it or not, it doesn't just happen you know, magically that they know who to block. You have to communicate, and sometimes the defense shifts, and you've got to communicate quickly <laughs> as to who's going to block who and, and to be very, uh, you know, very on top of it. You've got to think quickly and work as one unit because if four guys get a good block and one lineman has a lookout block, the play is going nowhere. Do you all know what a lookout block is? You can impress your friends next time you're watching football together. A lookout block is where the lineman misses his guy and goes, look out! <laughs> Not that that ever happened to me, but I've seen it happen to other people. Okay. Now, one of the ways in which linemen learn to work as a unit is that practice they make you hit the sled. Can we get the picture of the sled up there? I don't know if many of you know about football sleds, and so I got a picture of a sled. Now, this thing, uh, you got five offensive linemen, and you got five padded dummies, and each of those padded dummies is spring-loaded, and they're heavy. And so what happens is the linemen get down in a three-point stance, uh, the coach blows the whistle, and they're supposed to fire out of that stance all at the same time and hit that thing. I would demonstrate it for you and do it like I used to, but I don't want to rip my pants. Okay, um, now, that'd be bad if I ripped my pants up here in front of everybody, wouldn't it? Now, um, what you do is you hit that sled, and that sled is hard and heavy, and you got to drive it and push it, and the coach is riding it, and you keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until the coach blows the whistle. And sometimes, uh, if you're in trouble, coach doesn't blow the whistle for a long time until you think your legs are about to fall off. You know what I'm saying? Now, in a perfect world, the way that's supposed to work is that that sled is supposed to go nice and even, because everybody you know, fires out of their stance at the same time, hits it at the same time, and everybody push it evenly, right? Nice and equal, but that almost never happens. What happens in reality is, say if this guy on this end is stronger than these people down here, it's gonna get tilted, right? Because he's pushing harder than they are, and so that sled's gonna get tilted and start to turn almost as if it was gonna do a big circle, you see. Now the church is supposed to be like a nice level sled with everybody working evenly, everybody doing their part. But you know what's wrong is most of the time, the church is like a tilted football sled where you got some people that are really pushing hard and others that are just going through the motions. And friends, I'm gonna tell you, God doesn't want anybody just to go through the motions. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. There are only players. And this core value, participation over observation, is part and parcel to our identity as Methodists. When John Wesley uh, was alive in the 18th century in England, you know, pretty much everybody was a member of the state church by virtue of being a citizen of England. You know, they'd been baptized, they were on the rolls in their local parish and maybe went to church now and again and so forth. And Wesley saw that, that these people were Christian, but they were Christian in name only. Their Christianity was distant. It wasn't personal, it wasn't vibrant. It was just kind of a cultural phenomenon. And unfortunately, friends, that's all too much like the Bible Belt in America today, where we're kind of de facto Christian but there's not enough taking it seriously and personally and doing something about it. And so Wesley started the Methodist movement for many reasons, but one of the driving forces was getting people engaged, getting people involved, getting people you know, up off their rear ends doing stuff, not just looking at what was wrong with the world, but actually making a difference and making some changes and responding to the needs of the world. And of course, also working on their personal holiness as well, their own pursuit of God. So this business of participation over observation is core to our Methodist identity. Now, at the beginning of verse seven, Peter starts out right away going for the jugular in terms of motivation. The end of all things is near. That's some motivation, friends. Now, Peter did not know when the end was coming. 
He just knew that it was coming, and we're in the same boat today. We don't know when the end is coming. We only know that it is coming because God doesn't measure time the way that we do. We would, you know, we would have thought it would have come by now, but it hasn't. But just knowing that the end is coming is enough motivation. Why? Because, friends, if we live as if, as if we're going to live forever, right, which a lot of us do a lot of times, we forget that, like, we're going to die too. You know what I mean? We know it in theory, but does it really sink in in actuality? A lot of times it doesn't. And so we live as if we're going to live forever, right? As if there is no end. And so we think, well, I know I should do such and such to help so-and-so, and I will in the future, one day, when things get better. I know I should spend more time with my family, and you know, I will when the timing's better. You see what I'm saying? We live without a sense of urgency because we tend to uh, sort of by default assume we got plenty of time. You know, take our time, no rush, because we're gonna live forever. And so, you know, eventually one day we'll be a better person. Eventually one day we'll volunteer more. Eventually one day we'll do, because we got plenty of time. So right now we're doing this, but one day, you see, and we keep putting it off. But friends, we're not gonna live forever. <laughs> I know a lot of people who've died. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's lived forever. You know what I'm saying? When you're young, you know, that hasn't really sunk in. You think you're just gonna kind of go on and on and on. But as, you, as years go on, you begin to realize, Guess what, the rule applies to me too. The Bible says it's appointed once for man to live and once for man to die. So not only are our lives on this planet going to come to an end, but life on this planet is going to come to an end. And Jesus is gonna come back, we profess that in the Apostles' Creed, and we believe that as Christians, that one day Christ will return to judge both the living and the dead. So not only will our lives come to an end, life as we have known it on this planet will come to an end, and Jesus will judge, and there will have to be, you will have to give an account, and I will have to give an account for what a difference we made with our life, well, what we did with our life, you see? For whether or not we use the gifts and the graces and the strengths that God has given us for his purposes or whether or not we live for ourselves. Did we live knowing that one day our life was gonna end and so we had a sense of urgency about us and tried to make a difference with whatever time we've been given? Or did we live as if we're gonna live forever and we had plenty of time and no rush, no worries, you see? Did we live knowing that one day we're gonna to have to give an account to the God of the universe, the very one who gave us life? Or did we live as if we could get away with anything, do whatever we want and assume it'll all be fine? Peter says the end of all things is near. Now, we've all been to funerals, we know that people die. <laughs> and in theory, we know we're gonna die. And so you see, Christianity really is a far more logical belief system than what our culture encourages. You know, it's funny, Christianity gets a bad rap for not being logical. But Christianity is actually a lot more logical than the belief system that we're going to live forever. We know that's not true, right? Christianity uh, is a lot more logical to believe that God's going to hold us accountable for what we did and didn't do than it is to believe that that's not the case. Because if it's not the case, why did God bother to give us life? Why did God bother to give us the ability to make choices if he's not going to hold us accountable for it? Why did God give us gifts if he doesn't expect us to use them? So the Christian standpoint, the Christian belief system is actually a lot more logical than the secular alternative. The next thing that Peter says is, uh, it, it flows very logically out of this. The end of all things is near, therefore do what? Be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. Be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. See, if we think we're gonna live forever, we don't have to be of sound judgment because we'll get infinite opportunities. <laughs> we don't have to be of a sober spirit because you know life's not really that serious because it goes on forever. But if we really believe that life uh, does come to an end and we're gonna be held accountable, then every day we have is infused with meaning and destiny and purpose. Every chapter of life, every year is infused naturally 
with meaning and purpose and value. Every decision we make, you see. The end of all things is near. Therefore, friends, Peter says, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit, which is perfectly logical, right? That frees you up, knowing that one day your life's only going to go on so long, knowing that you're going to have to give an account, your life has meaning. That is so freeing because it now, now you can have a realistic appraisal of yourself and of life and think clearly and be in your right mind. And so Peter says, get busy. <laughs> I don't mean just be busy doing stuff. We're all good at that. You ever notice that? Everybody's busy. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but they're busy, right? So I'm not telling you just to like book your calendar and run ragged. I'm saying get busy doing stuff that matters. Get busy being the person God has called you to be. Get busy making a difference with the life you have. Get busy using the gifts that God has given you because life matters and we only have so much of it. And one day we will stand before the very one who gave us life and he will judge the living and the dead. Now I know some of you may be thinking, well, that applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. Well, check this out. Here's what Peter says in verse 10. If you weren't uh, listening this morning, he says, each one, everybody say each one. Now I looked at it in Greek and I looked at it in English. You know what it means? Everybody, each one. It's not just kind of like, you know, a symbol or a metaphor or something. He means each one, everybody. Has been given what? A special gift, he says. Say special gift. Special gift. Each one, Peter says, everybody has been given a special gift. God does not leave his children without some sort of spiritual gift. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I mean, I'm the exception. I don't have a gift. I mean, that might be great for you, but I can't do anything. I don't have a chance. That's not true. We might not know what it is, <laughs> but you have been given something to do by God. You have been given something to do by God. As each one, Peter says, has been given a special gift. And you know, one of the reasons why it's special, one thing is, because God is so powerful and so beautiful and his grace uh, is so abundant and so varied and personal that he, he works in your life differently than mine and he gives you gifts that I don't have. And you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's part of the reason why it's special. Even if, say, I have the gift of teaching and you have the gift of teaching, guess what? That gift's gonna play out differently in your life than it is mine. You're gonna teach a little differently because you've had different mentors and influences and life experience. You see what I'm saying? It's incredible the way that God works and how individualized and personal our gifts are. Each one, Peter says, has been given a special gift. And the way that God has intended for it to work is that all of our gifts would work together to form a beautiful whole. So you might be here and you might think, well, I've got a gift, but it's not really important. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. Nobody's ever affirmed my gift. I tried using it once and, you know, it was kind of shot down or whatever. Well, let me tell you something. The way it's supposed to be is everybody doing their part, everybody using the gift that God has given them. And we might not see how it fits into the larger whole, but it fits into the larger whole because God wastes nothing and God wastes no one. God doesn't call someone one of his children. God doesn't have you believe uh, in his son and our savior, Jesus Christ, and then go, yeah, but I'm not gonna use you for anything. God has something he wants you to do. God has given you some sort of special gift and he wants it to be played out in a way that only you could in a way that only you could. And it, it works together to form a beautiful whole, whether we know it or not. When the church is doing that, when everybody's doing their part, everybody's using their spiritual gift, it's like a beautiful stained glass window. I have an image here for you of the principal stained glass window in Duke Chapel, where I did my undergraduate work. Uh, that's the stained glass window at the end of the chapel. Now, let me ask you a question. You can't see it too good because it's taken from a little bit far off, but that was the best picture I could find. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of different panes in that 
stained glass window, a lot of different individual pieces, okay? If you ever go to Duke Chapel or you go to cathedrals, that's the way it is. The panes usually are pretty small and there's a lot of little pieces that fit together to form that. Now let me ask you a question. Which pane is most important? All of them, right? Because what would happen if one pane was missing? The whole thing would be ruined, you see? And the church is supposed to be like that. You say, well, I'm just a little part of that. I'm just a little pain. Well, so what? Who cares? If your piece is missing, the whole thing is ruined. Like a beautiful stained glass window, God wants for all of us to be using what he has given us to fit together to form a cohesive, beautiful whole. It's just like on our pastoral team here. I think one of the real strengths of our church uh, is that all of us pastors are different and we have different gifts and abilities and personalities and backgrounds and hopefully that works together. I think it works together pretty well uh, to, to meet different needs and to hopefully appeal to different kinds of people, right? Jeff is a great leader. Faye's warm and caring. Nick and Trevor are young and cool. I'm the team nerd. <laughs> and every team needs a nerd so the others can feel better about themselves, okay? It's an important job. <laughs> The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit, just as each one has been given a special gift of God. Do what? Serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, is what he goes on to say in the rest of verse 10. Serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Pastor Fay is preaching this morning in the sanctuary on uh, another one of our core values, the core value that people matter. And so if the idea that the world's gonna end and your life's gonna end and you're gonna have to give an account to God, if that's not enough motivation, <laughs> then serve and do your thing because people matter. Serve one another, Peter says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The implication is if you're not using your spiritual gift to serve other people, you're not being a good steward of the manifold grace of God. And being a good steward of what God has given us, that's what life's all about, isn't it? That's a, I mean, that's not some minor matter. God has given us this gift of life and these gifts and abilities, and he expects us to be able to give an account for them and how we've used them. So serve one another. There, there really is a sense in which in the church, your gifts don't belong to you. Your gifts belong to the church and to other people because God didn't give them for you. <laughs> God gave them for his body, the church. God gave them for other people. And I'll guarantee you, you might think you don't have much to offer, but there are people in this very room who need the gift that you've got to offer. And you might be thinking, well, you know, God couldn't use me because, I mean, you don't know what I've done. Well, let me tell you something. Some of the most powerful servants in the kingdom of God are those who messed up the most before Christ got a hold of their life. Some of the most powerful servants in the kingdom of God are those who messed up the most before God got a hold of their life. And you know what? Some of them messed up after God got a hold of their life. I've known some powerful men of God who went through some really rough times and life transitions, made mistakes, all of that, and God redeemed it, and they still had a ministry left. And they went out, as I like to say, they went out in the saddle, still riding hard for God, still serving. So I don't care who you are or what you've done or where you've been, God has a purpose for you. God has a gift for you, and God longs for you to use that to serve others uh, because people matter. So you might be saying now, well, I, you know, okay, fine, you got me. I have a gift and so forth, but I don't know what it is. Well, what are you naturally good at? What are you passionate about? What is it that stirs your heart? You know, when you hear about what's wrong with the world, what is it that maybe bothers you a little more than it seems to bother other people? 
Do you know what I'm saying? That just kind of weighs heavy on you, even if maybe it doesn't affect other people as much. What is it that's made a difference in your life? Was it a particular form of ministry or you see what I'm saying? Who is it that got you here and what did they, you see what I'm saying? Because oftentimes the way that God has impacted our lives is a good sign of perhaps how he wants us to impact others. And sometimes, you know, I said a moment ago about God using people that are broken, God using people that have made mistakes. Oftentimes that will be the very area of your spiritual gift. Because people that have made serious mistakes can relate to others who have made serious mistakes uh, in a way that I never could or, or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Or people that have gone through uh, a season of brokenness can relate in a personal and real and powerful way in a way that those who haven't had an experience like that just can't relate. And so God will gift you in that way. I think sometimes we limit ourselves because we think of uh, spiritual gifts as being too generic. You know, teaching, preaching, evangelism, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that's bad, but I also believe that spiritual gifts are more personal than that. And I believe they work themselves out in your life in, in a personal way that you might not be able to put your finger on. I have the gift of, that's not what I mean. But what I mean is using who you are in God's uh, journey in your life, God's story in your life, the way God has moved in your life to make a difference. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit let each one use the special gift he has received as serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, when I was growing up, my mom always taught me that if somebody gives you a gift, you have to go out of your way to show gratitude for that gift, right? I mean, that's just good manners, whether you like it or not. We teach our kids this, you know I mean? I remember one time, um, <laughs> their Sunday school teacher at our last church gave them something and Esther Joy piped up and said, we already have that. I was like, Pow hush, kid. You don't say that. You know, you, you tell her you're grateful. It's the thought that counts. Thank you so much. You know, we're teaching them these things, right? My mom always said, whenever you receive a gift, you know, if somebody gives you a shirt, make a point to be sure they sh see you wearing that shirt. If you get a, a gift, try on your thank you note in a perfect world to say, I look forward to using this however, right? That's polite. Now, sometimes we fall short of that. But, you know, all of us, I think, have had the experience of looking for a gift for somebody Maybe you shopped or you went online or you saw something, you know, months before Christmas and you were like, that's it, that's perfect, you know, and I'm gonna get it and, you know, right? And you just thought, this is gonna be the thing, this is gonna be awesome. And you gave it to them and they were like, thanks. You know what I'm saying, <laughs> right? We've all had that experience and you just go, you just, you know, you just kind of shrink down and you feel about this big and it's, it just really takes the wind out of your sails, doesn't it? When you thought it was gonna be a great gift and there's just no gratitude for it. Or maybe, and I think we've all done this too, you know, you were given a gift and you look back and you go, mm, you know, I didn't receive that gift well. Maybe it wasn't what I wanted or, you know, uh, whatever. Maybe you had tension with the person or you were caught off guard. Who knows, right? But there's an art to receiving gifts. And I think all of us could look back and be on both sides of that. We've given gifts uh, that were not received well and we've probably received gifts that we didn't do a good job of expressing gratitude for. And we know how it hurts. We know how it feels. And my question for you is this, friends. If we believe the word of God, which I hope we do, <laughs> that each one, not just pastors, not just missionaries, not church leaders, each one, everybody has received a special gift and has a stewardship. God has given us a stewardship. God has given us something that he is gonna hold us accountable for how we've used it. If we really believe that's true, how do you think God feels when we don't use it, the gift that he's given us, or when we don't show any gratitude for it? How do you think God feels? When Grace and I got married, we, uh, we got married in Somerville, where she's from. My parents are from Spartanburg, and we were going on our honeymoon in Georgia and then back up to Kentucky, where I was in school. And so we had my parents haul our gifts uh, up to Spartanburg, and a couple weeks later, we came down from Kentucky, and her parents and so forth came up from Somerville, and we sat there in my 
family's den in our living room and I had a, you know, a big time opening all these gifts. And I'll never forget, we still laugh about this. We opened this one box and there was a card inside. It was from one of Grace's friends. There was this card tucked inside the top of the box, but the card wasn't to us. The card was to the friend who gave it to us. She had re-gifted that without even opening the box. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and to make it even worse, Grace knew the person who had originally given it to her. And so we thought, you know, we should write off to Miss Manners or Emily Post or somebody and ask, you know, do we write a thank you note to the person who gave it to her? Or do we write a thank you note to her? Or do we write a thank you note to both? Or do we just not express gratitude at all? I don't know. What do you do in that situation? It's just so awkward. You know, you know the whole re-gifting thing is just so awkward in general, isn't it? You know, it's just like, that is the tackiest thing I've ever heard. Here, I wanna give this to you and I wish you all the best in a long and happy marriage because I love you so much. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Okay, sorry, I'm stepping on toes. That's what I'm good at though. It's never stopped me before. <laughs> but how does God feel? How does God feel when we treat it like that? When we treat it like something we just wanna re-gift. <laughs> when we treat it like a burden. You know, Jeremiah said, the word of God is like a fire in my bones. I can't withhold it, I've gotta let it out. How do you think God feels when we, we don't even care to know what that gift is. We don't seek to serve. You know, one of the good things about Mount Horeb is uh, we have a lot of ways to get plugged in. <laughs> There's good things and bad things about being in a big church, but one of the good things is there are a lot of ways to get plugged in. And I'm gonna tell you something, friends, with over 4,000 members and 2,000 in worship normally, there is no reason why we should have holes in terms of needing volunteers. I mean, if you're sitting out there and you're wondering, well, I don't know where to get, well, get plugged in somewhere because we've got a place for you and we've got a lot going on and the kingdom of God is now. <laughs> the end of all things is at hand and there's work to be done. The harvest is plentiful, as you said, but the workers are few. Some of you may be familiar with Donald Miller, a Christian writer and speaker. He wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz several years ago that was very popular. I don't know, some of you may have read that book. Donald Miller tells the story about a friend of his named Bob Goff, and apparently Mr. Goff is one of those really rare individuals uh, who will just, you know, do the things that most of us just think about doing. <laughs> you know, I'll, you know, some of us, we might have an idea pop in our head, wouldn't that be crazy? Well, of course we're not gonna do it because what would people think of us, right? Well, Mr. Goff is one of those guys apparently who just does it, you know? So years ago, he was living in San Francisco, raising his children, and his children on New Year's Day said that they were bored. Don't you hate it when kids say that? You know, I'm like, bored? How could you be bored, you know? I mean, I wish I could be a kid again, right? But his kids weren't football fans and they'd been out of school for a while. You know, everything's closed, it's New Year's Day and nothing to do in their minds. And so they said they were bored. And so Mr. Goff got the idea of having a parade of all things. <laughs> he said, you know what? We'll have a parade to celebrate the gift of a holiday on which we can be bored <laughs> and to celebrate a new year. And so the kids were fired up about this. Every kid likes to do stuff like that, have a parade, you know? So they went and knocked on some of the neighbor's doors and, and the neighbors agreed, you know, they wanted to humor the children, right? Now, most of the time when you go to a parade, it's kind of like what I said earlier about a stadium. I mean, most people are watching the parade and very few people are in it, right? I mean, you got those guys, you ever been to a parade where the, where the Shriners are there with their go-karts and they're, you know? Don't you know those guys practice for hours and that's like a thrill, you know, just ride those go-karts. And you know, you got the guys with the muscle cars, and you just know that the only reason why they have that car is to ride in that parade, baby, Whoa, you know? And that's usually what goes on in a parade. And you got all these people lying on the sidewalks cheering and all this stuff, right? Well, they made a special rule, Mr. Goff did in this parade. And he said, nobody can watch the parade. You have to be in it. <laughs> nobody can watch our parade. You have to participate in our parade. 
And so that started out as just kind of a silly whim, you know, to amuse his kids uh, on a holiday when they were bored. But then they did it the next year because the neighbors thought it was fun. And then the next year and so forth and so on. And now years and years later, there are several hundred people in that neighborhood in San Francisco who participate every year on New Year's Day in that parade. They look forward to it. It's become a big tradition. Friends, the kingdom of God is like a parade that you can't watch. You have to be in it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have indeed given us a gift and you have infused our lives with meaning and purpose because they will come to an end. Just as surely as we were born, so the day will come and we will die. And just as surely as you live and your word is true, the day will come when you will judge both the living and the dead. And we will have to give an account for how we've used our lives and particularly, Lord, whether or not we were good stewards of the manifold grace of God, using the special gift that you have given to each one of us, whether we lived for ourselves or whether we lived to serve others for the sake of your kingdom, whether we were just observers who wanted just to watch you or whether, God, we actually followed you and did the things that you would have us to do and strove to be the kind of person you would have us to be. We pray that that might be the case, God, that when our time comes, when our days here are accomplished and we go forth for that moment of judgment, that we might not hear, why didn't you do this? Why did you hoard your gift? Why did you keep it to yourself? Why did you not steward what I gave you? But that rather, God, we might have lived for your purposes, leaving nothing back, leaving nothing out, given of ourselves as you have freely given to us, being good stewards, using the special gift that you have given us so that we might hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy master. Amen.